Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. What's up, football fans? Kevin Smith with you for another episode of The Call Sheet. Hope everybody's hanging in in these uh, dying days of the winter and getting excited for Combine Week. The NFL Combine kicks off on Thursday, today, actually, as this show drops. And if you're a football geek like me, that's an exciting moment. And we'll have have plenty of Combine talk in the second part of today's show. But we're going to start things off the way that we usually do by talking about the number of the episode. This is episode number 46. And usually at this point, we profile a player who wore that number. And, you know, there's some, there's some 46s we could honor if we wanted to. One guy who jumps out is Herm Edwards, former New York Jet Philadelphia Eagle. Uh, one of the great quote, uh, coach quotes of all time from Herm Edwards. You play to win the game, right? I love that quote. You play to win the game. Herm Edwards defending some of his decisions as a head coach. Herm Edwards, we profiled him a little bit on this show about two months ago in episode 39 when we talked about the miracle at the Meadowlands. Larry Zonka, who was number 39, right? Fumbling a handoff from Joe Pasarczyk in the dying moments of a Giants-Eagles game in 1978. Rather than taking a knee, the Giants try and hand it off. Zonka fumbles. Herm Edwards scoops it up, runs it into the end zone for a touchdown. Uh, He'll always be remembered for that, for his coaching career. Great player, that Herm Edwards. Uh, And a a pretty uh, motivational guy. But today we're taking a different tact with our number of the episode, episode 46. And we're going to talk about a scheme. And we're going to talk about a scheme because it's a legendary one that most of you are probably familiar with. Most of you probably remember the 46 defense authored by the 1985 Chicago Bears, a defense that has been voted in many different polls the greatest defense of all time. I know that Steeler fans who are listening will take some exception with that when they think back to the Steel Curtain defenses. Uh, But in most polls, It's the Chicago Bears 46 defense, particularly from the 1985 squad that has been voted the greatest defense of all time. So I thought we would take a look at the 46 scheme here in part one of the show and break it down for you and then talk a little bit about, you know, where's it gone? Why why was the 46 defense so good in 1985 and in those mid 80s seasons for the Bears? 
but you just don't hear about it hardly at all anymore. What has happened to the 46? So first, let's talk about the 1985 Bears. That was one of the most dominant football teams in NFL history. They went 15-1 and in the regular season. Uh, they rolled through a, a slew of impressive opponents, held Joe Montana and the 49ers. I mean, the, the 49ers were in the midst of their 90s dynasty where they won four Super Bowls in the 80s. Uh, and they held Joe Montana and the 49ers to 10 points in a 26 to 10 win, sacked Montana seven times. When they got to the playoffs, they absolutely steamrolled the opposition, beat the Giants 21-0, beat the Rams, who had the NFL rushing leader, Eric Dickerson, who rushed for over 2,000 yards in that 1985 season, shut the Rams out 24-0, and then went on to Super Bowl 20 and absolutely shellacked the New England Patriots and poor Steve Grogan. 46 to 10. So a 91 to 10 run through the playoffs. Those three playoff wins coupled with their regular season total, 18 and one overall on the season. The one loss, interestingly, to Dan Marino's Miami Dolphins. And Marino put 38 points on the board through for 270 yards against that Bears defense. And we'll talk about why that's significant in a moment. But in the in the bigger picture, right? That Bears defense averaged giving up just 12 points per game. They had nine pro bowlers led by, you know, the colorful buddy Ryan, the team piloted by head coach Mike Ditka. I mean, that just was, you know, it's a legendary group. And then you start rattling off the players. I mean, up front, the defensive line led by Richard Dent, who led the NFL in sacks that year, Steve McMichael, and of course, William the Refrigerator Perry, the nose tackle, who really anchored that line. And then you had, uh, pass rushing greats on the edge at linebacker Wilbur Marshall and Otis Wilson. You had the defensive player of the year at inside backer, the Mike backer, Mike Singletary. And then you had some heavy hitters in the secondary, Gary Fensick, Dave Duerson, future NFL coach, Leslie Frazier. I mean, it was just a tremendous group of players and buddy Ryan put them in the perfect scheme for that group. All right. What, what of that scheme? What was the bear? defense, the 46 defense. Well, well, I just mentioned the, the way that it's referred to today. If you hear NFL commentators or analysts talk about teams playing a bear front, that's basically the 46 defense. It's named after that famous Bears team. And what the 46 did is it, it stacked eight players at the line of scrimmage. If you lined up in a tight end set, the Bears were going to put six guys on the ball. And it really started with their, their their configuration in the middle. You you hear sometimes coaches and analysts and podcasters, et cetera, talk about techniques on the defensive line. Uh, the Bears played a 3-0-3 with their interior defense. What does that mean? So a zero technique is, is a true nose, a guy who lines up right on the, on the head of the center. And three techniques are shades. Any odd numbers in, in a defensive line numbering system is talking about a shade. And what does that mean? That means a defensive lineman who's lined up on the shoulder of an offensive lineman. So if you're a one technique, you're shaded on the center. If you're a three technique, you're sh you're shaded on the guards. And so the bare front relied on a 303, which meant a true nose and that was that was 350 pounds, which is probably generous, probably closer to 400. 350 pound nose tackle William Refrigerator Perry lined up right on the head of the center. And then 
two shades on the guards. And the key to those shades is that they they forced those guards to on block. So you could not double team the center. You really couldn't double team anybody because you also now had a five technique, which means a shade on one of the offensive tackles and a nine technique shading the tight end. Weirdly, I, you know, I don't want to get into the technique numbering system too much, but weirdly, when you start talking about shades, the numbering system goes like this. One tech is a shade on the center, three techs a shade on the guard, five techs a shade on the tackle. It would make sense that a seven tech then would be a shade on the tight end, but no, that's a nine tech. A seven tech is actually an inside shade on the tight end. But again, I'm not getting into the weeds. That's, it makes no sense, but that's just in the football lexicon. That's just generally how it's referred to. So yeah, so in a bare front, here's what you got. Zero, two threes, a five, and a nine. Basically, everybody up front is covered. The one guy who's not covered is the tackle to the strong side, offensive tackle to the strong side. But you also have two linebackers, a Mike and a Will backer at five yards depth, and then a, and then a strong safety or, or a strong backer walked up outside the tight end. And what made that difficult was you couldn't block that guy. I mean, that guy usually was coming unblocked off the ball. If an offense lined up in a traditional uh, alignment in those days, which was usually with a tight end, two wide receivers, probably a fullback or a second tight end, that that extra backer, that Sam backer or that strong safety, whomever, whichever p- player they decided to align, was was uncovered. He was not going to be be able to be blocked unless you accounted for him somehow with your fullback motion over a second tight end, something like that. So really, what, what was the philosophy of the bare front? The philosophy was this. You're not going to run the ball. You're not going to run the ball on the bare front. They're going to create uh, a, a scenario in the middle of the line where you can't get double teams. You got to block 350 pound William Refrigerator Perry one on one. You got to block uh, tremendous defensive tackles, Steve McMichael and Dan Hampton one on one. And that wasn't going to happen. And if you did double somebody, then you freed somebody else up and you had all these great players running to the ball. Man, these super athletic linebackers like. Marshall and Wilson, you know, the defensive player of the year, Mike Singletary. You couldn't block Mike Singletary. When Mike Singletary lined up in the middle of that defense, he was covered by those that 3-0-3 alignment, which meant the guards couldn't get off onto the linebacker. And now you had one of a tackling machine, one of the best defensive players in the NFL in Mike Singletary running free to the football. And so defenses couldn't run. So you had to pass. I should say offenses couldn't run. So you had to pass. And the key to making this work was the Bears played a cover three scheme behind it. Oftentimes they played cover one. It was a single high defense, one one single high safety. Gary Fensick, who was a hitting machine and could cover enough ground uh, to make you pay if you you hung balls up deep. And you had to get the ball off fast because there was eight guys up front. They were bringing – Myriad blitzes, man. They had a million different blitz combinations. You didn't know who was coming, who was dropping off into coverage. If they sent the house, you better get the ball out fast. And in 1985, most offenses aligned with their quarterback under center, which means they didn't have the luxury of the quick snap into the shotgun. Quarterback catches, throws the ball. Nobody's throwing perimeter screens in 1985. There were no bubble screens, smoke screens to the wide receivers. The quick game was not something most offenses did. 
uh, in great detail. The 49ers were running a West Coast scheme that got the ball out fast, but that hadn't really caught fire yet in the NFL. And so it was a lot of deep drop back passing. It was a lot of play action off of the run game. And, and those five and seven step drops that quarterbacks were taking under center meant that when they hit the back of their drop, they had dudes in their face. You had to get the ball out now against the Bear defense or you were in deep trouble. Take that game against the 49ers I referenced, which, which Chicago won 26 to 10. They had seven sacks of Joe Montana in that game, racked up seven sacks of Montana. And that's really what made that effective. Obviously, you let Joe Montana stand back there. He's going to pick you apart. They didn't. They did not allow that. So <clears throat> coverage could be a weakness. But when you can play man and bring pressure or when, when you can bluff man, play cover three uh, and force a defense to or an offense to throw deep down the field, which is the weakness in cover three uh, and basically dare them. I dare you to stand back there in the pocket long enough to let those deeper routes develop while we send Richard Dent and Otis Wilson and Wilbur Marshall and, and these dudes at you. And oh, by the way, it's 1985. So guess what we can do to the quarterback in the pocket? anything we want. <laughs> we can hit that guy anywhere. We can hit him low. We can hit him high. We can lead with our helmet. We can take two full steps after he's released the ball and hit him. I mean, it was really, really, when you think about it, why did the 46 defense succeed so much? It was because it was a perfect scheme for that personnel. And it was a great scheme for a time when NFL offenses were determined to run the ball down your throat. And NFL passing games were geared in throwing the ball deep down the field. And the Bear defense simply abused quarterbacks in that particular philosophy and refused to allow you to run the football. Okay, so where's it gone, right? The Bears defense, the most dominant defense of all time by many accounts, uh, it's, it simply vanished. The 4-3 is still with us. The 3-4 is with us. The 4-2-5 has been around now for 20 years. Right? What? Why not the bear? Well, you you still see elements of the bear in the game today. The bear front is still used by teams. You'll still see to anytime you see a defense cover up the center and both guards, they're in a bear front. But the problem with utilizing heavy doses of the bear front today is that NFL offenses have adapted. They're simply spreading you out. You can't put eight guys at the line of scrimmage because of all of the spread formations that offenses use. In 1985, 21 personnel, which meant two backs and a tight end, or 12 personnel, one back and two tight ends, they were the most common formation groups, personnel groups that teams used back then. Today, it's 11 personnel, which means one tight end and three wide receivers, one back, one tight end, three wide receivers. You put three wide receivers on the field, automatically that means you either got it. You want to put eight guys at the line. You're either playing in cover zero, which is, you know, you can't do that in a steady diet of that in the NFL receivers are just too good. Or you obviously you got to walk guys out of the box. So, so what NFL offenses have done is they've figured out how to lighten up the boxes, right? Open up the boxes by spreading the field, force defenses to play in more space. And that's really eliminated the 46 defense. So I mentioned that defenses still do get in bare fronts. They do. I mean, we've seen in recent years, teams like Philly and Kansas City and Tampa, all teams that have won Super Bowls in the last six, seven seasons, they, they've been some of the teams that have used heavier doses of the bare front, but they use them very strategically. They use them on rundowns. 
They use them. It's a great way to defend inside zone, which is a scheme that wants to hit in the A-gaps, and it's a scheme that relies on double teams at the point of attack, and the bare front takes those away. Uh, PFF did a deep dive on all of the all of the bare fronts used between 2016 and 2019, and they found out that bare fronts were used on 12% of downs in that time, and they were best against inside zone plays. The, the, the EPA of inside zone runs against bare fronts was worse than it was against any other front. So you can still find a, a way to use these fronts in strategic situations, in games, first and 10, you know, when you know a def- an offense is going to run the football, et cetera. But you can't use them on, on a steady diet of them because offenses will bubble screen and quick game you to death. Everybody's throwing quick game now, and quick game is the undoing of heavy run fronts like the Bear. So the 46 defense, the Bear, whatever you want to call it, named after the legendary 85 Bears teams, one of the great schemes uh, in NFL history. You, We can argue all we want whether or not that 85 Bears defense was better than the Steel Curtain or the Purple People Eaters or the 2001 Ravens or some of the great defenses in NFL history. But the scheme itself was legendary and elements of it remain with us in the game today. All right, that's our deep dive on the Chicago Bears' 46 defense. We're going to take a break. On the other side, let's turn our attention to the combine and uh, look at, at some of the other uh, things to watch for. If you are a football geek like me and you're going to sit down and digest the combine over the next few days, what are some things you might want to look for? Come on back after the break. Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you. And in part two of the show, we're going to turn our attention to the NFL Combine, which kicks off Thursday today in Indianapolis, uh, an event that really has now just become kind of like the kickoff, the unofficial kickoff to the new league year. I know technically the new league year doesn't start until mid-March or so with free agency, but the Combine really feels like you know when it, when it all gets going, all the scouts, GMs, coaches descend upon Indianapolis. You got about 300 prospects gathered there to audition in, in what some people like to refer to as the underwear Olympics. And, and it really just it feels like the beginning of the league year. You know, Jeff Hartman and I on our NFL whip around show, were talking earlier this week about whether or not the combine is overrated, how much of it actually translates. Uh, and there's, you know, I don't know if it translates literally. I don't know if there are literal things that you can take from the combine and say, this is, you know, exactly what a player is going to be in an NFL game. But you can certainly get a, a really good read on some of these guys physically, mentally, the behind the scenes stuff where they're conducting interviews with these guys is very important. And it can definitely move people's draft stock up or down. So we're going to talk quickly about three prospects who are worth keeping your eye on as you watch the combine this week. Who are three guys, man, who who could really help or hurt themselves with their performance this week? in Indianapolis. Before we talk about them, though, real quick, let's talk about some guys who are not going to be there. Namely, the three big quarterbacks in this draft, Caleb Williams, Drake May, Jalen Daniels, all three of these guys opting not to go to Indianapolis. Instead, they'll work out at their pro days. And so, you know, real quick, why? Why are they, why would they choose their pro day over the combine? Well, two reasons. One, these three guys are all pretty much 
locks to go in the top 10. They might be the top three picks. You may see in some order, Williams, May, Daniels go to the Bears, Commanders, uh, and New England Patriots who hold the first three picks in the draft. And so really, how much can they actually help their draft stock in Indianapolis? It seems as though maybe it could only go the other way, where a poor performance could cause them to slide. And so understanding that, they would rather work out at their home campus where their coaches are going to be running the drills, their receivers who they're familiar with are going to be running routes, the familiarity of of going to your home campus for your workout, as opposed to auditioning in front of uh, you know these these NFL coaches who you're not real familiar with who run the drills and these receivers from other schools who you haven't thrown much to that benefit of your home campus is significant to these high level guys so those guys won't be there but there will be some high profile quarterbacks who are going to throw and the first of the three guys I think who who's really worth paying attention to is Michael Penix of Washington now he's a guy who who his draft spot could be anywhere from maybe mid to late first round where you could see a QB needy team uh, take a shot at him and or all the way into the middle of the second round. Penix might slide into day two there. You could you can see maybe maybe there's a high level team at the top of the draft. A team like the Patriots who decides that they got it they, they have a need that's greater. They maybe they love Marvin Harrison. Maybe they're like, hey look man, we don't think that like the number three quarterback in this draft, whoever they think that might be, Daniels May, we don't think he's a super elite guy, but we think Marvin Harrison is that guy. Marvin Harrison's a can't miss guy, and so hey, what are we going to do? We're going to we're going to take a shot at a free agent quarterback, maybe a Kirk Cousins, take a run at a guy like that, and then we're going to bank that in round two at the top of round two, we're going to be able to get a guy like Penix, and so maybe they'll. They'll draft Harrison at three, Penix in the second round. Who knows? But Michael Penix is a guy whose draft stock really could move up or down based upon his performance in Indianapolis. He, there's there's a lot of division on him as a pro prospect. He didn't look great in the, in the championship game against Michigan. There are some questions about his processing uh, and his release. Is he just too slow? Does he take too long to get the ball out? He's very deliberate. When you watch him, there, there doesn't seem to be anything sudden about him. He's very deliberate, and that could be detrimental to him as an NFL quarterback where with the way that defenses disguise coverages, the ferocity of the pass rush, you got to be quick. The quick passing game and getting the ball out quickly are huge points of emphasis in the NFL, and there's guys that are going to want to see Penix at the combine and and see if he can speed himself up. Now, on the pro side, uh, his accuracy is phenomenal. His football IQ is said to be tremendous. Uh, he's got a ton of experience. I mean, this is a guy who's a sixth-year player, was a sixth-year player this past year at Washington. And so he'll come to the league with tremendous experience. Uh, and so if you feel like he is a guy who you can work on speeding him up in terms of both his reads, uh, his recognition, and getting the ball out, he may be a guy who moves up. So a big draft, a big combine performance from Michael Penix could elevate his draft stock, earn that young man a lot of money this week. Another guy who's really probably got the opportunity to to move up. I you know, you know I don't know if, how much he'll move down. I guess he could, 
but is is Tavondre Sweat, the massive defensive tackle out of the University of Texas, listed at six foot four and three hundred and sixty pounds. Most recently clocked in the forty at five point oh five seconds. I mean that's that is that's incredible for a specimen that large. And some of my favorite guys to watch at the combine are the defensive linemen because you get an appreciation for a how big they are and b how fast and fluid they are at that size. It's remarkable to watch these guys. I really love that day. Defensive line and linebackers, my favorite guys to watch at the combine. But Sweat, Sweat's a guy who didn't get a ton of publicity at Texas because he was kind of overshadowed by his line mate, Byron Murphy III, who's, who's going to be a first-round pick uh, and you know maybe may even be a, you know, a top 15 pick. But Sweat, for what he does, might be the best in the class. He is an old-school one-tech, meaning a guy, like we were talking about in the first part of the show, who lines up on the shade of the center and, and really forces double teams. I mean, it, it's hard to block a guy that big and strong with the center one-on-one. So it kind of forces you to, to use a guard to double him. The better he is at eating up doubles, the more it frees up the linebackers to run to the ball. I know old-school 3-4 nose tackles, are kind of being phased out of the league a little bit. They're, they're not really three-down players anymore, and I don't think Sweat would be a three-down player. And there's a lot of debate now about, well, how much draft capital do you want to spend in a guy who may only be a first or first and second down player? But the thing about Sweat that's interesting is this. If he comes to the combine in phenomenal shape, again, 6'4", 360, let's say he's slimmed down a little bit. Let's say he's maybe in more in like the 340 to 345 range, and he runs sub five in the 40. I mean, picture that. Picture a guy, Devondre Sweat, who's who's already, man, uh, you know, a strong anchor of the line kind of guy, who now at 345 pounds is run, is running sub five in the 40. And, and he looks like his conditioning is really good because that's one of the big knocks on him is that is that he's not always in great shape and that his conditioning is a detriment. If he comes in in great shape, kills it in the agility drills, kills it in the movement-based drills, everybody, who cares about the bench press with this guy? We know he's going to be able to bench press a house. We know that he's a powerful guy. But man, in the movement-based drills, if he's really impressive, it could significantly elevate his draft stock. Every year, there's that draft riser. Last year, it was Anthony Richardson, who a guy when when the combine began was being talked to uh, or talked about kind of like Michael Penix, you know, maybe late first round, early second round, something like that. And then he just wowed people at the combine and he soared all the way up to being the number four overall pick. So sweat will never, he will not go that high, obviously, but it would not be shocking to see with a great, a great workout in Indianapolis, him sneak into the late first round or certainly the early second. So Tavondre Sweat, University of Texas, massive defensive tackle. He's another guy to keep your eye on. Okay, speaking of 40 times, man, that, that's always one of the marquee events of the Combine. And every year, it seems, there's a couple of guys who just run these scorching times and elevate their draft stock as a result. So it'll be very, very interesting to see who comes out the big winner in uh, the 40-yard dash and then what that inevitably does for their draft stock uh, in April. So a couple names to look at there. Roman Wilson, the wide receiver from Michigan, 
Tony Franklin, fellow wide receiver from Oregon. Those two guys are probably going to run low four threes, maybe even break four three. Wilson has been clocked at four two nine. I think if there's if there's a guy who in the last month, maybe you got to go back a little further to the national championship game. So okay, the last six eight weeks, I don't think there's a guy who's elevated their draft stock pre combine more in the last six eight weeks than Roman Wilson, who who he's a five foot ten, hundred and eighty eight or so pound slot receiver generally regarded as maybe in the receiver rankings in this draft, falling somewhere between number eight, number 12, somewhere in there, but had a great playoff run, man. Two spectacular performances in the playoffs uh, against, well, predominantly Alabama, but also played well in the national championship against Washington and then had a great senior bowl, an absolutely great senior bowl where NFL coaches, man, his name's, his name was on everybody's lips at the Senior Bowl as a guy who stood out. And now if he comes to Indianapolis and puts up a blazing 40 time like he's supposed to, you could see Wilson, who coming into this past season was thought of as maybe a third or fourth round pick. I mean, you could see him get all the way up to the top of the second, even maybe late first round for a team that really values the slot receiver position. Another guy to keep your eye on, maybe the greatest name in this draft, Kool-Aid McKinstry from Alabama. He's going to run a great time. He's probably going to be a first-round. I don't think there's any probably about it. He's going to be a first-round pick. How high will be the question? A couple of corners to look out for. Chris Abrams, drain out of Missouri, a 4-3 guy. And then another another guy that, that I had the, uh, I don't want to say pleasure to coach against, against because it was not pleasurable, but in retrospect, I feel fortunate to have coached against Max Melton, the corner coming out of Rutgers, who a lot of people see as maybe a third or fourth round pick, uh, who could elevate his draft stock with a blazing 40-yard dash. He's going to run somewhere in the four threes. Have, trust me, man, coaching against that kind of speed is is no fun. I coached against Max Melton. I coached against his brother, Bo, who, who, who just had a great run towards the end of the year with the Green Bay Packers. I've talked about coaching against Isaiah Pacheco. I mean, you, you coach against these guys, and, and you have to have a plan for them. You have to have a plan for them. Now, Melton's a, Melton's a, uh, Max Melton's a corner uh, at Rutgers, also played receiver in high school. Just a problem, man. You hold your breath. Every time the ball goes out to him, you hold your breath because you know they could go to the house at any moment. So I'll be excited to see where Max Melton winds up. But he's another one, man. He's going to be one of the top 40-yard dash runners at this combine. And that could significantly help his draft stock as well. So to recap, if I'm giving you three names, the three people who I really feel are are worth keeping our eyes on, Michael Penix, Tavondre Sweat, Roman Wilson. Uh, watch the big guys, man. Watch, watch the big guys, the D-line, the linebackers, especially go through their speed-based and movement-based drills. It's an awesome thing to watch. Just the appreciation you get for human beings that large. There aren't that many people that big moving around on the planet. And there are far, far, far less people that big moving as uh, with, with the agility, the quickness, the deftness, the dexterity that these dudes are. So that's a pleasure to watch. And then the 40s, man. The 40s, not, a, not an event that literally translates to the football field very often. There aren't a whole lot of straight 40-yard dashes on the football field. But the speed at which these guys are moving is really, really fascinating to watch. I'm really hoping to see somebody drop a sub 4340. That's always pretty exciting to watch. So, okay, can't wait to tee up the combine this weekend. 
for those of you tuning in, right? Uh, I hope you have some great observations and we'll touch on some of those next week when we do episode 47 and Steelers fans, if you don't know who that's going to be about, then shame on you. So for the call sheet, this is Kevin Smith. Take care, everybody.